from Kurtco Media. We're in the middle of the biggest disruption in the industry, definitely in our lifetime, and perhaps the biggest one since the self-starter over 100 years ago. That was the voice of Sam Fiorani, our guest today on Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross. Welcome to another episode of Cars That Matter. I am here with Sam Fiorani, Vice President, Global Vehicle Forecasting with Auto Forecast Solutions. It sounds very daunting, and indeed it is because there's a lot of crystal ball activity that goes on in your world, isn't there, Sam? Yeah, absolutely. Welcome to our podcast. You publish the Automotive Forecast Solutions Monthly Report, which is, as I gather, a really kind of an inside look at the state of the auto industry. But first, tell us about your own car self, Sam. You had quite a trajectory, haven't you? I mean, you've sold cars, restored cars, you write about cars. And of course, you've been an industry analyst for a long time. Where to start? I've been a car person all my life. My folks said that I used to identify cars by their headlights or taillights when I was two. As I was growing up, I wanted to be a car designer and I stumbled through my college years. My engineering background did not pick up as well as I'd hoped it would, but I took a different detour and went on to economics, which led me to the auto industry where I've been an analyst now for about 25 years. It's amazing how this stuff all just sort of comes together. And sometimes you end up with a job that you actually never thought you'd have. I go to schools and tell kids, that the job you want, the job that you'll get may not be one of those ones you see on TV or that your parents had or things like that. There are so many jobs out there that we as kids never saw or never made aware of. So I like to let the kids know there's a job out there for you. And if you just look, you'll find one that fits your personality and your likes. And as the saying goes, if you have a job you love, you never work a day in your life. You literally created your current job when you were involved in the launch of Auto Forecast Solutions in 2014. Is that right? Well, the company was founded in 2014 and I was the initial forecaster for vehicles. The team that we put together has been together for most of the last 22 years. We know each other and we can catch our faults and support our strengths. We're a really well-oiled machine. I don't imagine you use a crystal ball or a tarot deck, but what does automotive forecasting really mean? I have a really good dartboard and a magic eight ball. And that's, <laughs> that's how we work. You guys usually pretty right on at least 50% of the time. Huh? We're really good. The great part about forecasting is that you are guaranteed to be wrong. You just have to be better than the next guy. That's our goal is to, to provide the most in-depth forecasts as detailed as we can get so we can get them accurate. Our methodology works really well and has been honed over the last 20 years or more. We do a really good job of forecasting every vehicle produced around the world in every plant. Currently, we work about 60 countries in the world. It's a few thousand vehicles. Good heavens. Okay, my mind is about ready to explode because in my little world, you read a few books, there's a little bit of opinion, there's a little bit of subjective this and that, but obviously you're crunching some serious numbers. The first number you mentioned was 60 countries around the world. Are you telling me, Sam, there are 60 countries that are manufacturing vehicles? We have 60 countries that actually build cars. There are even more that assemble cars. So we treat assembly differently. So if a kit comes from a manufacturer in one country and shipped to another and they 
just barely take it apart to ship it across the border just to get around taxes. That's called semi-knockdown kits. And so those kits, we don't count where they're assembled. They're counted where the parts come from, but everything else is assembled or produced in as many as 60 countries around the world. Obviously, we know about America and Canada and Mexico and, you know, a few places in Europe and I think South Africa. And then, of course, there's China and Japan, Korea, but I couldn't come up with 60. It's a bewildering concept. So obviously, you are deep as heck into the auto business. Maybe we should jump into one topic that I suspect you know a lot about, I know absolutely nothing about, and it's the concept of EVs, electric vehicles. Boy, the conversations always seem to start these days talking about electric vehicles, don't they? We're in the middle of the biggest disruption in the industry, definitely in our lifetime, and perhaps the biggest one since the self-starter over 100 years ago. That's right, Cadillac self-starter in 1912, am I right? Right, right, absolutely. Prior to that, if you were too weak to turn a hand crank and hand cranks on cars were dangerous things. If you were too weak to do that, you had an electric car or a steam car and the self-starter allowed everybody to drive a gasoline car and it was much easier to refill. There was less maintenance and it went farther than an electric vehicle. By the mid-teens, every car had a self-starter and everybody could drive one. And now all of a sudden, a hundred years later, things have been turned upside down again because EVs are back and I guess they are all the rage. The future kind of seems inevitable. They're clean and the newer vehicles are so powerful and so quick. We drove a Tesla about 10 years ago, I swore the front wheels came off the ground when I accelerated in that car. It was just so quick. And that wasn't even a high performance version of the Model S. So we're fully expecting a lot of high performance cars to be electric in just the next few years, just because they are so quick and they're clean. When you have a V12 or a turbocharged V8, they pollute a lot. And getting around all the restrictions around the world is really difficult with an internal combustion engine. But with an electric vehicle, it's easy. Is EV technology evolving very quickly? Or are we at a place now where manufacturers have sort of charted the course based on existing technology and it's not going to change a whole lot? It's going to change. Since the first internal combustion engine car about 140 years ago. Since then, we've had 140 years of development of the ICE. They have cleaned them up. They have fuel injected them. They have done all kinds of work on these cars. An internal combustion engine today is a fantastic piece of machinery. Electric vehicles also dated back to about the same time, but there's this lull of about 80 years where nobody touched them. So we were running on lead acid batteries for 100 years on the EVs that were around. It's only been about 20 years now that we've worked into different types of batteries. And over the next 20 years, you're going to see huge, huge advances in battery technology. Does the onslaught of the EV sort of spell impending doom for the internal combustion engine? Probably not in our lifetime, but you'll see that a lot more EVs will be on the road. I'm doing estimates going out to 2040, and we're looking at a substantial amount of the market will be EV by then. But the longer term is for something cleaner than a battery because batteries are a dirty technology themselves, even though they don't pollute themselves. So moving on to something like a hydrogen fuel cell would move us to the same technology that we're using for EVs. Just you can refuel it with hydrogen and the pollution is water. That's right. So what you're dealing with there, I guess, is a major infrastructure system that would allow that to actually flourish and increase worldwide. Absolutely. We have to figure out a way to cleanly make hydrogen because the methods that do it now, we have the same issues with batteries and hydrogen that the process that makes them isn't that clean. So if we can get 
the process cleaner so that it becomes cleaner than using a gasoline engine. That'll be the end result. So you're telling me there's no free lunch yet. There's no free lunch. We still have to pay for our lunch. We may have a senior coupon, but we still have to pay for it. Okay, I get it. But we're going to get there. We're going to get there eventually. Well, let's assume that these EVs take over. Let's look at the current state of the landscape. Obviously, the EV industry is dominated by one company worth multiple billions of dollars valued at far more than any reasonable economist would allow. What's going on there? Is Tesla still the 800-pound gorilla or is it going to be other companies that are launching? Maybe we don't even know their name yet. Tesla is the big boy in the room right now. And a lot of people look at Tesla as not so much a car company as a technology company. I have an analyst in our office, Conrad, who tells us all the time that a Tesla is not a car. A Tesla is an iPhone. A Tesla is the technology that connects the driver to the data that other companies will use eventually. So because Teslas are so well connected, they know what you're doing and they know how you're doing it. And all that data will be monetized later on. And other companies will step up and do the same thing. So that's the big reason why it's as valuable as it is now. But there are more companies coming. We're doing a survey now and we have about 130 startup companies that are looking to get into the EV space. So is this like those little turtles that kind of hatch from the beach and they scramble and the seagulls are swooping down, eating them alive and only about two of them survive? There are going to be a lot of these eaten by seagulls, trust me. And are they spread across all world markets, Sam? Are they in America? Are they Europe? Are they in some distant realm? Because the EVs don't have emissions. They're easier to sell in different countries. A lot of companies are starting up in countries that you wouldn't expect cars to be built. And these companies are starting off with brand new cars, brand new infrastructure, starting from scratch. Entrepreneurs in Africa, entrepreneurs in small countries in Asia, entrepreneurs in the United States and Europe are all stepping up to make these new vehicles and crack into this industry. Let me ask you about the technology in the EV space. Is this all proprietary or is it being shared? In other words, is everybody working with the same set of building blocks or are they actually seeking some philosopher's stone of EV? so they can do it differently than everybody else. The better companies have come up with some sort of technology that they're basing their vehicle on, something proprietary to them. But a lot of these companies are looking at the supplier industry. And this is how the whole automotive industry works is that there's a supplier out there who provides for ICEs, they provide fuel injection systems or transmissions or all these different components. The same thing happens with the EVs. There's a company making batteries and there's a company making motors and controllers and all these different pieces that you need to build the electric vehicle. It's relatively easy to pull this stuff off the shelf and make an electric vehicle, but it becomes an appliance at that point. The differentiator is that piece that you have to yourself. Tesla's vehicles are super fast. It's their own motors and they're working on new battery technology. So they do have a lot of components that are exclusively to them. How are the legacy OEMs going to adapt? Are we looking at a bunch of tyrannosaurs and diplodocuses and stegosauruses that are kind of just going to get consumed by a swamp and disappear? They're hoping not. They're stepping up right now. You'll see it in little steps right now. These aren't small companies. It's hard to turn the Titanic. So when you have a company like Ford or General Motors that has built an industry for the last 110, 120 years making ICEs, changing it over to EVs is not a single step. So they've each come out with one car or two cars to make them leap and they're eventually going to get there. But the big deal is that stockholders want a technology company. They don't want one of these legacy dinosaurs. So General Motors and Ford are trying to re-envision their own company to let the stockholders know that General Motors is no longer the company making Cadillacs and Hummers. They're making Chevrolet Bolts and Cadillac Lyrics and all these new modern electric 
vehicles, and Ford is doing the same thing. Well, I guess it's going to be a matter of time to see who excels at that process and who nuances it just correctly. Maybe it's about automotive styling. Maybe there are some other attributes that these cars have to bring along for the ride to make them as appealing as some of the legacy models with legacy brands. I know certainly in the high-performance car arena, it's really shaking things up nowadays. You've got obviously the hybrid electrics from Ferrari and Porsche and Lamborghinis probably soon coming around. McLaren already has. I mean, it's changing, but certainly a lot of consumer resistance as well as consumer kind of excitement. It's a, it's a strange combination of emotions. Getting a person to change from what they know, getting somebody to turn away from their Ford Explorer or Chevy Suburban or something that they are used to over the years of driving and knowing where to refuel it and knowing that the range is 300 or 400 miles before I have to stop for a gas and knowing that you won't be stranded somewhere when the battery dies because you forgot to look to see that you didn't charge it last night. It's a different world. You just have to be ready for it. And buyers will be ready when they step up and buy their Ford Mustang Mach-E or Chevrolet Bolt EUV. Yesterday, I had the pleasure to do some testing on a new Ferrari 812 GTS. So that's probably just about as wild and woolly a conventional internal combustion engine as you can get. It's an 800 horsepower car, it revs to 9,000 RPM and sweet mother of that car is fantastic. But guess what? Performance is sort of getting leveled, isn't it? Because you get behind the wheel of a Tesla with all the electrical trimmings and trappings in that car is all of a sudden as quick as anything on the planet. I had somebody ask me the other day about some new model that just came out and it had zero to 60 time in four seconds. And he was appalled that it was four seconds. That's forever compared to an electric car. That's right. It's really true. So, I mean, we've got a situation now, Sam, where I really wonder if performance means much anymore because the, the playing field has been completely leveled. All of these things are stupid quick, stupid fast. I guess my question is what in the future will be important? What's really going to distinguish these cars one from another? The problem is that the future of privately owned vehicles may be a short-term thing. And so when we eventually get around to autonomous vehicles, which I'm hoping isn't anytime soon, but when we eventually get there, what do you care about the performance of the vehicle because you're just going to be sitting and reading a book or watching a movie or doing work or what have you and letting the vehicle drive for you. It's not about the enjoyment of the drive at that point. It's about getting me from point A to point B. I still like driving my own car. I still have a car with a stick shift. As a matter of fact, driving the car is definitely an enjoyment for me. And I'm not looking forward to when I'm forced to have an autonomous vehicle. I'm looking forward to the day when other people are forced to drive autonomous vehicles so that they don't swerve into my lane or slow me down <laughs> As I'm driving to work. Well, you know, it's funny, Sam. I was on the freeway yesterday and imagining just the same thing, that it really will be a better world in some ways when the rise of autonomy allows most people to maybe not be quite as ill-equipped to actually drive a car as some of them appear to be. I'll put that very delicately by just leaving it at that. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. We're back with Sam Fiorani. What about some other trends? Because as a part of your forecasting, obviously you look at these other trends and I don't even know where to start. This shift from passenger cars to trucks, it's like you look around you and it's like, there are hardly any cars left. As a person who enjoys driving a car and I have a four-door sedan, I understand the draw to a car. I understand the appeal of a truck, the additional utility, the sitting up higher and seeing over my car when you're sitting in traffic. The whole 
movement towards trucks started about 30 years ago when we had a rule in the federal laws called CAFE, Corporate Average Fuel Economy. And the way the CAFE was set up, cars had a tighter regulation than trucks did. So if you were to buy a car, the manufacturer had to average 27 miles per gallon across their fleet of cars, but they had to average 24 across their fleet of trucks. So wouldn't it make more sense for them to push you towards a truck, especially when the truck made more money? That's right. So it's sort of a get out of jail card free for these manufacturers that all of a sudden they changed the mindset. Absolutely. And that's when the Ford Explorer came about. And that's when the rise of the sport utility came about. And everybody started shifting over to these station wagons that were built on truck bodies, on truck chassis. But they would have been called a station wagon just 10 or 15 years earlier. But now all of a sudden we have the SUV. And well, we know how that turned out. It's a big move that the whole market made. And we just came along for the ride because that's what we were told to buy. We need to have a sport utility now. And when your neighbor has one, suddenly that's the in thing to have. And I've got to have my sport utility to go with it. This SUV truck mania, is this a U.S. kind of thing or is this a worldwide phenomenon? It started in the U.S., but it is slowly migrating to every country of the world. We've called them crossovers now, but they're technically trucks but they're physically cars and they're just a little bit taller, give you that higher point of view from the car, but it's still a car. It's still based on a front wheel drive chassis. It's related to your Honda Civic or your Toyota Corolla, but now by law, they call it a truck and they're popping up everywhere in the world. They're all over China. They're all over Europe. Everybody wants to build one now. We certainly in America have visions of what's happening on that part of the world, both in terms of politics and industry and economies and all the challenges that are faced by an economy essentially that's positioning itself to take over the universe. What's going on in China in terms of cars? I've heard they have the most voracious automotive appetite in the world. Well, they do have well over a billion people there. And when you compare it to the United States, which has a quarter as many people, in, in the United States, we sell on a good year, 17 million vehicles. They have the potential for a huge market there. In the last few years, they've been in the low 20 million range, up to about 24, 25, 26 million units in a year. In a good market, that number should be 40 or 50 if you're going by the same standard you're going by in the United States. It's a great potential for any car company that wants to start up to launch production in China because you have so many potential buyers. So let me ask you this, Sam. Am I guessing that if these were all internal combustion engines, we'd all basically be gasping for air in 10 years so that essentially back to the EV, they sort of have to be something else. They can't be internal combustion engines. Yes, the internal combustion engine it was the car of choice in China. They have cleaned up their act over the last 10, 15, 20 years where the newer cars are more on par with the rest of the world for emissions. But they are really pushing now for EVs because they want to corner the market. They want to be the country that provides the world with EVs. And they're doing it. They have so many companies pushing these new vehicles. So let me guess this then, Sam. European cars, for instance, are still considered the benchmark for luxury and prestige. You've got your super high-end brands. I think they even love Buicks for that matter. For some reason, that's a popular brand in China. But you're saying that their EVs would then be the go-to brands that would be purchased around the world, including America. They're easier to sell in other countries. So these companies that want to start exporting can easily bring an EV because they bring something new to the party. Especially in the United States, we have so many brands to choose from. You have the range from bare bones cars all the way up to high luxury cars. What is there new that a Chinese brand could bring to the party? There's just nothing there. And it's not like back in the 80s when the Koreans came in or back in the 60s when the Japanese came in or back in the 40s when the Germans came in, they came in on price. That's not going to happen again because it took each of these countries 
and their products probably 20 years before their cars got the status to sell at an average price. The Chinese are not going to come in there. They've seen how this has been done. They're not going to come in and say, oh, we're just going to undercut everybody and take some market share, especially when a car today is so nice that a used car, a car off lease for two or three years is priced as good as you're going to get for any low end car. And you're buying a two-year-old Cadillac or Lexus or something that is a decent car to start with. There's a lot of competition all throughout the market. That's interesting. Obviously, a whole different discussion could be had about what happens to all these cars in terms of the volume of cars coming back off lease. So they're essentially new cars because guess what? Cars today don't break like they used to break. And <laughs> these things get a soldier on in perpetuity if they're maintained. It sort of has one imagining that there are multiple cars for any single individual. When I was growing up, each family might have two cars. And when the kid turned 16, he had to borrow mom or dad's car. Today, a lot of kids have their own car when they turn 16 or 17, if they want one. And cars are reliable, even at high mileage. When I was a kid, just not too, too long ago, 100,000 miles was when you threw away the car. It wasn't going to last past that. In our current household fleet here, we have two cars approaching 100,000 miles and two cars, 200 and plus. It's a different world. And guess what? They won't die. You find a good car and treat it well, it will last a long, long time. Let's talk about these manufacturers for a minute. I remember back in the 70s, I'd bought a Lancia. I think I was about one of two people in America who did. And I had a mechanic who was very prescient. He said, you know, Rob, by the turn of the century, there will be about seven car manufacturers left. I thought Steve was out of his mind. What do you mean seven manufacturers left? I could count 50 right now. Well, guess what? The marksman may be around, the brands may be around, but they're owned by a handful of people. And today, the corporate consolidation is getting even more extreme. I mean, obviously, this whole Stellantis merger that has brought like 14 marks together and some strange bedfellows too. I mean, Citroens and, you know, <laughs> Citroens and Maseratis <laughs> haven't slept in the same bed for, for 40 years since De Tommaso bought the company. What's going on there, man? Are we going to have one big brother owning all these brands in the future? Years ago, I worked for Standard & DRI as an analyst. Right about the time I started there was when they announced the Daimler Chrysler merger. And one of the magazines called me up and asked me what I thought about it. And I said pretty much what you just said. I quoted somebody else who had once said, in the next 20 years, there will be 10 car companies in the world. If you looked at it, there were about that many, the major number of car companies. I did a chart one time on all the brands that are currently owned by the top 10 manufacturers in the world. And it's over 200 brands over the years. Going all the way back to the beginning, they have run through about 200 brands over the top 10 manufacturers in the world. It's amazing how they've consolidated so much, but the consolidation continues except for the fact that China came in. And with China coming in, they've added another 40 or 50 manufacturers. If you treat China like the United States was a hundred years ago, where we had 3,000 manufacturers in the United States alone. Did we really? The estimates are 3,000 to 3,500 in the United States alone, and maybe 5,000 around the world back in the teens and 20s. Good heavens. So when you look at China, they're at that stage now. They are where everybody gets in and starts making a car. The weak ones will fall by the wayside. The middle strong ones will get purchased by the big strong ones and will be down to a handful of manufacturers again. And of course, China's coming back and buying a lot of Western brands too. That's how they're going to sell around the world is by having a brand that everybody knows. Volvo, MG, 
they tried to buy Rover and Saab. There were a bunch of these nameplates that they've scooped up and decided they're well-known in the Western world. Their local brands are not that well-known. So we'll write off the back of these names that everybody knows. That's a, really an incredible journey. And obviously you're at the forefront of describing it and predicting it with auto forecast. It must be an incredible job, but a lot of responsibility too, Sam. Because like you say, you want to be right most of the time. We have some great clients who really appreciate what we bring to the table. The customer service we provide is fantastic because we live this stuff. We really enjoy this. We just didn't fall into this industry. This was the industry that chose us and we bring a love of cars to the business. Well, I can tell you love cars. We're going to talk about that after we take a break. But before we do, I want to ask you one more question. Can you let us in on any secret city forecast that may not touch on anything we've talked about yet? Or maybe to phrase it differently, what's going to be the most important thing that happens in 2022, for instance? In the short term, there's not a lot. But as we said, EVs are coming. And so more and more vehicles are going electrified or electric. They're either hybridized or they're fully electric. And so things like Cadillac has already announced that in the next five or 10 years, they're going to be fully electric. But the one little bit of information that we leaked out recently was that the next generation Mustang, the current generation will be replaced next year. The one after that will be an EV. But heavens, it's unthinkable. I mean, I grew up with Mustangs. But it makes (laughs) sense because if you want to have extreme performance, electric is the way to go. We'll be right back in just a moment here on Cars That Matter. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. Back to Sam. Let's talk about Sam Fiorani for a minute. You're a prolific writer. You've known so many people in the field of automotive journalism. One of my questions to start would be, who are some of your greatest influences? Some of the people that kind of helped you craft your style and your trade? I've read so many different writers and enjoyed all their work. And about 30 years ago, I was fresh out of college. I was trying to find something to do. And what I really wanted to do was get in with a group of people who liked cars. So we could sit around and just talk about cars for hours on end. And so somebody pointed me towards the Antique Automobile Club. Oh, that sounds perfect. Everybody I knew growing up was in AACA. They had an old car. So I I joined a local AACA at 25 years old. The problem with AACA is that it's not so much a car club as it is a club of people who own cars. Those people at the time were a lot older than me. So I'm 25 years old sitting at dinner with 60 and 70 year old people who are discussing about how their friends retired to Florida or their kids are having grandkids and they weren't talking about their cars. They were talking about their friendships and such like this isn't this isn't the group for me. So one day I was watching a show on one of the networks and it was about the greatest cars of all time, the top 10 greatest cars of all time. They counted down the cars and they had these talking heads come on and explain why this car was so great. And one of the people came up was Beverly Ray Kimes and it said automotive historian, president, society of automotive historians. I'm like, oh, I've never heard of that group. That sounds like the group for me. This is the pre-internet age. I had a f- historian friend track down how I could get in touch with them. I tracked them down and joined 
joined in SAH, became a board member at one point. This was a group of people like-minded like me. Again, they were like the AACA people. They were a little bit older than I was at the time, but they had a wealth of automotive knowledge that I just sucked up as a sponge. It was fantastic. And Beverly Ray Kimes was one of the people I was fortunate enough to meet there. She was a fantastic writer. She was the editor of Automobile Quarterly for decades. Very prolific writer in her own right. A fantastic woman. She was a great inspiration to me. We're on a Zoom call right now. Our audience can't see you, but I'm looking behind you and I see a, an entire bookcase full of Automobile Quarterlies. And boy, what a great library that is. Those are the distinguishing characteristic of a serious automotive historian. So I am impressed, but I'm not surprised, Sam. When I was a kid, I had a neighbor who had a nice collection of old cars. So I would ride my bike over to his house and he would clean up his Model T or his DeSoto. And I would talk to him. And one day he took me into his house and showed me his collection of Automobile Quarterly. I'm like, oh, that's a great, great book. I love those. So I spent probably the next 30 or 40 years trying to track down all of the books back to the early 60s. And I have a decent collection of them. I'm still, I've still got holes in the collection, but I'm working on filling them. But you've certainly done a lot of writing yourself. You've done a very entertaining series of articles, uh, Automotive Traveler, and had a chance to enjoy some of those. I mean, and really essentially traveling tours that touch on subjects that have nothing to do with cars, but they're awfully fun. Wine, beer, even the record store tour. My guess is that you're an LP fan. Between cars and music, those are my two biggest afflictions, I guess, because I, I collect pieces of both. I have a nice little record collection, but about 10 years ago, my buddy and I decided we were going to go to record stores and we were going to hit six record stores in three states in one day. So we loaded up the car and planned the whole thing out. We found the store that opened the earliest. We found the store that opened the latest. We planned it out so we could stretch it across three states and seven stores. We piled in the car on a Saturday morning and it was a freak October snowstorm that day. We'd been planning this for six months and it was snowing that one day. So we ended up going to a couple stores and then as we were driving, we drove through Pennsylvania and then into New Jersey and we got into New Jersey and our next store was back in Pennsylvania. But the snowstorm was across Northern Pennsylvania and Northern New Jersey. And we knew that if we went to that store, we weren't getting out. So we had to cut off one of the stores of our seven and head south and head to Baltimore for our last two stores. So it was supposed to be seven. It ended up being six. And it was a great tour. We, as a matter of fact, we were in one store when the power went out. We had the flashlights from our phones to read what was on the shelves of the stores. That's quite a scavenger hunt. I got to tell you, as a bit of a record collector myself, I know that sometimes it takes quite a bit of time to find just those special albums. How many did you come back with? We had two or three milk crates full of records as we came out of there. I was looking for uh, Johnny Cash live at uh, Folsom Prison. I was looking at, I'm a big Prince fan, so I was looking for Prince records that I didn't have in my collection. There were all kinds of interesting little novelties we found that we couldn't find anywhere else. I like to kind of end the program with a question to all my guests, and obviously you're going to throw this at you. No trick questions, and there's no right or wrong answer. If somebody handed you the keys to three cars that you could have, what would they be? I always joke about uh, whenever I see a big warehouse, I'm like, yeah, that'd be a good start for my collection because I have so many cars that I would love to have. But if you had to narrow it down to three cars, it would have to be, you know, a, a good collector car. Something really, really nice would be one of them. My favorite there is the Bugatti Royale. Only built six of them and they are spectacularly big and fantastically built cars. The Royale was built on a dare, basically. That Somebody said to Atari Bugatti, yeah, you, your cars aren't Rolls Royces, 
And he said, well, I'm going to go out and build a Rolls Royce. So the Royale was the end product. If I'm not mistaken, the engine in that car was initially designed to power uh, locomotives. Is that right? The remnants of the engines, because they built six cars, but they built 30 engines. So the other engines went into to trains in France. Really incredible. Oh my God. What a story. So if I have that as my collector car, I need a daily driver. And my daily driver, I have always been infatuated with Avantis. Oh, when I was a kid, my okay. uncle had a friend who had a 78 Avanti 2 and I just love the styling of that but I would want an Avanti touring sedan they built them one year it's the four-door model oh my god you are dredging up some of the weirdest of the weird I know that car and it is absolutely the most it's like a four-door Facel Vega they did make a few of them but most people don't know that and fewer people would even imagine that they ever had when they came out with the touring sedan the pictures just looked terrible i could not believe what they did to that beautiful car and then i went to the dealership and saw one and i just fell in love with it it looked completely different than it did in pictures and i wanted that car how many do you think they made sam 70 okay Okay. Yeah. And I had a chance to buy one a few years ago and I passed on it. I'm like, I've been kicking myself ever since. Well, maybe one will come around. They're certainly not thick on the ground, but I don't imagine they have a line of guys waiting to buy one either. So maybe you're... Not too many, no. I'm that guy. Maybe your time will come. <laughs> you got one more car. What's it going to be? I would like to have a nice driver car and a little sports car of some sort. And there's so many to choose from. And this is heresy for an MG fan, but I would really, really, really like to have something like a Triumph TR5 or probably more in line with the MG lovers. I would like to have an MG RV8. Okay. So first of all, most people are going to say, uh, Sam, they never made a Triumph TR5. But of course we know they did. Tell us what that car is. Well, <laughs> the, the British shop I worked for, I worked for Steel Motors in uh, Enola, Pennsylvania. When I was working there, my boss found different cars in different places. And he had, at one time, he had two TR250s. And the TR250 was the step in between the TR4 and the TR6. And it was the American version, whereas the TR5 was the version everybody else got with fuel injection. And because at the time, fuel injection did not pass American emissions, we had to have a carbureted version. So we got the 250. And it was a six-cylinder TR4, basically. That's right. I love that car. It's basically a TR4 with a six-cylinder engine that was uh, eventually found its way into the TR6. So sort of like the best of both worlds. Absolutely. No, it looked good. And it had that engine just revved so nicely. It was fantastic. Sam, you've got great taste. You picked a Type 41 Royale. You've got the weirdest Avanti in the world and maybe one of the sweetest little triumphs that mg on the other hand was quite a rarity obviously never made its way here small block v8 in that car wow when the british motor heritage reproduced mg bodies and rover was looking to relaunch the mg brand they brought it back with the rebodied mgb from the 70s with a modern land rover engine inside it and it was a fantastic looking little car i liked how they did it well sam thanks so much for joining us today this has kind of been a not only a traveling back in time but a little bit of future travel too i don't get a chance to do that with most of our guests because they're usually in one time dimension or the other but you have definitely crossed all of the time dimension it's been a fascinating conversation. I want to thank you for being on Cars That Matter. Well, thanks for having me. This has been so much fun. Thanks to Sam Fiorani, Vice President Global Forecasting of Auto Forecast Solutions for joining us today on Cars That Matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter. 
edited by Chris Porter. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.